save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning, and I'm Ellie Weiss, and welcome to Our Wild World. We've been focused recently on the need for our attention as to how we dedicate wildlands, protect and manage them for wildlife, and as well, protect them from us. My guest today is John Laundrie, who has worked in large mammal predator-prey ecology for over 30 years and studied predators and their prey in the western U.S. and northern Mexico. His experience includes working with cougars, wolves, coyotes, bobcats, deer, elk, bison, and bighorn sheep. John has conducted one of the longest studies of cougar ecology and behavior to date, 17 years, with over 15 scientific articles published on his work. Our discussion today considers the public cost of wildlife mismanagement and the consequences of bureaucratic decisions that fail to consider the public good and the intrinsic value of wild predators, as more and more we as a society are facing problems with how wildlife of all types are managed in the United States, along with the increasing conflicts and polarization between hunting and anti-hunting, animal welfare, and animal rights groups. Intense emotional contexts which often throw out the science. Without further ado, I welcome Professor John Landry. Welcome, John. Well, thank you. Thank you. Here I am. Here you are, and I have to say I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time. Uh, mountain lions are definitely one of my favorite big cats in the U.S., one of the smallest, one of the small of the big cats that we have here, and they're all over the world in, in a lot of places, and um, recently with our U.S. government shutdown and what was going on in our national parks, I think we have a really good opportunity today to engage our listeners on how wildlife in our country is managed. So, Without further ado, we've got a lot of uh, ground to cover today. So um, let's let's get started. Uh, I'm going to give you a sort of a two-point question here. What are the various aspects of how our wildlife is managed or mismanaged, and in particular our predators, and the other side of that, the lack of use in science in our current systems? Okay, first, um, I want to say I'm glad to, to be here today and to talk about these, these particular uh, subjects because it is very important to us because um, in terms of the answering your first point, the aspects uh, regarding management, one, the, one of the basic things we have to keep in mind is that the uh, bylaw, and it's been supported all the way up to the Supreme Court several times, bylaw, the wildlife belong to everyone. Uh, within a given state, uh, and if they're on federal lands, then they actually do uh, their their management decisions um, belong to everyone in this country, and so that's the the basic thing that we we have to keep in mind. And um, it's unfortunate in that the problems we have today is that wildlife are not 
now managed for everyone. They're managed for a very small subset of the population, primarily the, the hunters. Um, what we find is that because the wildlife do um, traditionally belong to the state, it's the, uh, the state's responsibility to manage these wildlife. Uh, all the states have charters. Some of them are uh, better than others, but they all do mention that, uh, that they still have the wildlife need to be managed for the, the people of the state. Uh, what we find is that um, this is not really the case, in which we'll get into more detail later, uh, but this is basically the, the crux of the problem, is that we become, and maybe we always have managed wildlife on a state level, primarily for this small subset of, of the, the population. So, so you bring up three really important things right there that I'd like to delve into just a bit more. A, okay. the small subset of people, who they are and where they come from. The massive amount of money that comes from the non-hunters. And then who are the players? Maybe we should start there. Who are the players in terms of the agencies, state, federal, I don't know if it's NGOs that get involved there as well, that are managing our wildlife. And there's also another point that we need to get into. It's not necessarily all wildlife. Mm. So let's yeah. start with who, who are these players? Okay, the, the players basically are on a state level. We, each state has a, um, a fish and wildlife or fish and game department. I, I tend to call most of them uh, game departments, even though they may say wildlife, because they do, as you mentioned before, do really only manage for a small subset of the wildlife, and that's the game species, the species that people hunt. On the uh, federal level, there's a variety of different uh, different agencies. Um, all the agencies that have uh, jurisdiction over uh, federal lands, the Forest Service, the uh, BLM, uh, the Park Service, they all have their, their own uh, biologists, uh, and they're responsible for managing wildlife within the boundaries of, of their jurisdiction. Uh, and then I think the other major player, players, or should be major play, players, are the, are the non-NGOs. There's um, NGOs that are specifically dedicated to to hunting. Uh, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, for example, uh, several different uh, deer organizations, and uh, so a variety of these um, exist. And it's unfortunate that they're the ones that do seem to get the have the most to say about what happens to wildlife in the in the uh, in the states. The other group within these NGOs are the what I, I tend to call the, the, the conservation agencies. These are, are not agencies, but conservation organizations that uh, indeed try to manage wildlife and lands uh, for the good of all wildlife, lands, and people. Uh, the Nature Conservancy, for example, um, has dedicated and saved much more land than Ducks Unlimited have relative to um, protecting it for all wildlife. Um, the Sierra Club, that you know, all of the different agency or different organizations that are devoted to uh, what I call ecologically sound management of wildlife. So those are the players. Uh, and then, the, and then also, aren't there the um, the uh, 
Dallas Safari Club and Safari Club International? Those are those are again NGOs uh, uh, that are dedicated to to primarily hunting. Right. Um, there's a variety of them, and uh, yeah. There's, but they carry a lot of clout, don't they? They do carry they do carry a lot of clout, more clout than they should, simply because um, of the things we'll get into in terms of, uh, later relative to how these agencies, stage agencies, actually do work. Okay. So um, let's get into the. So you've you've highlighted for us the different players. So we have, you know, private NGOs, public NGOs, we have the state agencies, and not all of their mission statements are aligned with each other. From Mm -hmm. species survival plans of our carnivores and our predators, because of their importance to the ecological processes, versus game. Those things we want to have a lot of so that we can kill them, which puts us in direct conflict with our carnivores and our predators. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that a little. Well, first, let me let me. Sh- uh, there is one. I okay. Think a ma- there are major players that we that player that we haven't considered. Well, actually, two of it that we haven't considered. We can divide the population up into three groups. Uh, one are the hunters. Uh, they make up about nationally about. Uh, a little less than five percent of the population. Uh, we have the what's commonly called the anti-hunters. These are people who t- do take a very strong stand against hunting uh, on all different levels. They also make up. They actually make up, I think, a, a slightly larger percentage of the population than hunters do. And then there's the bulk of the population I tend to call the non-hunters. These people don't hunt. Uh, they tend to, in in surveys, they tend to indicate support for hunting, but I think it's mainly because of the kind of idealistic way that hunting is, is portrayed to them. But uh, they, they're the group that make up probably the, oh, at least 90 to 95% of the rest of the population. And these are the ones, whether they know it or not, are the ones that have the least amount of say in how wildlife are managed. I've actually <laughs> noticed that over the years. You know, there is no place I or, you know, a lot of my um, colleagues can go and say, other than an NGO, to support wildlife? Yes, there's, there's very, uh, other than, as we'll mention when we talk about the, the amount of, of funding that, that, because the bulk of the funding for wildlife in general does come from this, this non-hunting segment of the population. And, and how do, where does that come from? Is it from national parks or? It, it comes from just a variety of different sources. Obviously the um, the national parks, uh, the fees that we pay to go to the national parks, um, but just the taxes alone that we pay um, that support. Every federal agency has a budget, and those budgets run into billions of dollars, especially like the National Park Service, the, uh, the Forest Service, the, the Fish and Wildlife uh, Service. All of these, BLM, for all of these have billion-dollar budgets that come from all the people in the, of the United States. When we, so pay the, taxes, pay, when we pay our taxes every April. When we pay our taxes. And so we are, just by paying our taxes, we are supporting the, the land, which then supports the wildlife across, across the nation and all the public land. Wow. And then there's also, um, there are at least three or four times more, I have to should pull up these figures quickly, but three or four times more, um, yeah, I think I have it. Three or four times more um, people who watch wildlife and like to see them alive 
than the people who who hunt them. And let's see here. Currently, I think the percentages are um, for wildlife watching at least 34% of the, of the population versus 5% for those who hunt. Uh, and when we look at the amount of money that these two groups spend, um, the amount that that, um, that wildlife watchers spend easily outpaces what hunters spend. And, of course, we, we talk about the the uh, multiplying effect in terms of jobs and taxes and and so what what the um, wildlife watchers are doing is supporting um, wildlife in a sense uh, uh, much much more than than the um, than the hunters and this comes the, through you know buying gear buying driving gear, cars uh, gas staying all. in hotels all that mm-hmm. okay so then you, then let's talk about what the hunters put in and why they have so much say and um, that the bulk or the proportion, let's call it the proportion uh, through hunting licenses. And then you had also mentioned in one of your um, blog posts and listeners, please uh, check out John Laundrie on uh, the web and uh, read some of his blog posts because they really make you think about in depth, what we're talking here, and the scope of of what's involved in terms of wildlife watching versus the hunting groups. So let's let's get back to the the hunting groups and what they fund and where it specifically goes versus game species to wildlife, all species and the environment they inhabit. Okay, the the, the hunters. Although she also contributes to their taxes, through their the things they buy when they when they go hunting, um, which is only a short time of the year. Um, but unfortunately, and it was either set up by design or, or who knows what reason, most of the, of the game agencies, uh, some of them still, were supported primarily or totally by solely just by license fees. These were dedicated funds that, um, in fact, um, one state. Um, still prides himself in saying they don't take a, a single penny of, of public money, uh, only hunting fees, which means then they become totally dedicated to the hunters and right. not to the rest of the population. Other states have changes. Um, Missouri, for example, now actually has a, I think it's a, either a half or a quarter penny um, sales tax that goes to, uh, to well, specifically wildlife ecology or wildlife conservation. Um, California, a large percentage of the of their budget comes from the general fund, uh, and so and when you look at those states that do this, uh, they actually have more um, scientifically sound um, strategies toward managing wildlife, specifically predators. And so it's unfortunate that when these agencies were set up, they were set up with, with only the hunters in mind. At that time, they that was uh, and it, it's, to me, it's always kind of ironical because the hunters are what caused the problem initially. They're the ones that killed off all these animals by the millions. And so what we did was we set up an agency that caters to the hunters. So this this takes us back to some history and there's a wonderful book called Nature Wars. Um, I can't remember the author's name at the moment, but he takes us back through just what you had said. You know, the, the two waves of um, Europeans that came in and settled 
the United States, starting from the east and then when they ran out of everything there, uh, particularly beavers um, and the fur trade, and then as they moved west, how they would kill everything off. So there is a European mindset, mindset excuse me, about predators. Let's get into that a little bit and why this carried over into the U.S., well, the, the, the typical mindset for the Europeans was that um, well, their experience was primarily with wolves. Uh, I think early, early on, they probably had, had some lions and stuff around. Um, wolves, bears, and um, um, European lakes. Um, but they're the ones that, and, that and, and it's kind of ironical because um, because of all the wars that, uh, that people fought in Europe, all the dead bodies laying around, they, they, they pretty much cultured the, the human-eating um, uh, characteristics in wolves, uh, simply because they were, you know, they obviously had to live. And, and we know that in any country in war, some of the first animals to, to be killed out are the large, large prey species, because, they, you know, hunters, there are people sitting around with guns with nothing to do, and so they kill them. That's an interesting parallel to the uh, lions in Savo in Kenya, you know, mm-hmm. from the uh, the lunatic line building the train, all the human cadavers that were left, these mm-hmm. lions found easy, easy kill, easy prey, easy food, and, you know, their genetic line ends up having that prey profile of people in their mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they develop a taste for human flesh and... and so does that actually does that actually lead to attacking and killing people? Uh, um, just you know, from a historical perspective, there seems to be support for it. Um, whether or not it's, uh, there's scientific um, support for it, I, I'm not sure. Uh, we do know we have um, animals that do develop, like tigers, that develop a taste for humans in in Southeast Asia, um, and so I think that's one thing that that we look at historically and see that in some places there have been more problems than in other places. Some of it seems to be related to to just that, the, the, um, the massive number of human corpses that were left for one reason or another. Wow, this is fascinating. You know, um, folks, we've got a lot to talk about. There's a whole lot more to cover here, so stick with us. We're going to step uh, away for a break, and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable, 
Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. And welcome back. This is Ellie and my guest, John Landre, a cougar biologist and uh, 30 years of experience in studying uh, predator and prey relationships and cougars, wolves, uh, bobcats, lynx, uh, bison, you name it. This is the man. Um, So in our first section, we brought in the scope of what we're dealing with when we talk about wildlife management. So once again, um, our wildlife management is basically comes from a long-held European view that predators are unwelcome and that we must manage the game species and uh, for us. So that leads to, I think it's called the North American wildlife model that we're going to talk about a little bit and why this has gone so awry. Take us into that, John. Okay, uh, just to kind of summarize what we said before, the, the, I think the root of the problem is how these, these game agencies got started and the reason they got started. Back then there was the, the big dispute between the, uh, um, the utilitarian use of wildlife that was supported by Pinchot, Pinshaw and, and Teddy Roosevelt and all of those. And in Muir and his group's view of uh, the esoteric uh, view of value of wildlife, obviously the um, more pragmatic view won because it had more monetary support because you could make money from um, trying to manage the, the hunters that caused the problem to begin with. And so the root of all of these agencies was then to basically cater to and thus were more mainly funded by uh, the hunting community. That then leads us to uh, automatically separating uh, all wildlife into two different groups, either game species, well, three three groups, into the game species or into um, non-game species, uh, that is the other 99% of the wildlife from from butterflies to uh, songbirds. And then there is a third group that uh, is kind of flexible. It it includes the the predators. Uh, It includes the fur bearers. It includes... uh, animals that were considered to be um, noxious 
such as prairie dogs, ground squirrels, animals that um, weren't really killed for food, but killed for a variety of reasons. Uh, the predators obviously were killed both for their fur and also because if they if they preyed upon a game species, they were seen as limiting those game species. Um, but that then becomes basically the classification of wildlife in this country. And then the ones that you were talking about that are, you know, the the, the agriculture, those that eat uh, what we grow. That they would fall under the the, the big class, classification of vermin. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Go ahead. And so basically, it's um, if we look at the way that the Asian game agencies are set up, their 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 prime objective, and this was. This is a way back when I was still in Idaho. Uh, I went to a, a game meeting, um, and of course they're they're open, but they're pretty closed. They were just they were just hunters there, and the the state uh, agency director he got up and basically his opening statement was the the goal of this agency is to put more fish in the creel and more game in the bag. Once I heard that, I became totally disillusioned with any any hope that any game agency would actually be um, be valuable for for um, uh, managing or conserving all wildlife species because and, that becomes their focus. And that's that's a big point because we hear National Forest Service or Bureau of Land Management or Division of Wildlife. Those words make us think they are for those subjects where really what we're we're learning today is that they are not they have uh, a rather skewed vision and and mission that is about consumptive and utilizing Mm -hmm. that's why you know some of some of the most of the federal agencies like the fish and wildlife service i think they indeed um are do look at all wildlife uh, but it's the state agencies. A lot of the agencies have changed their names to fish and wildlife agencies, but they're really still fish and game. Um, they do that, you know, they, their main concern is looking at game species and nothing else. So how do we go about um, understanding who is taking care of the non-game species, including our carnivores in, on, on the state and federal Side. Well, on the, on the state level, um, there has been a small attempt through the, um, the non-game pro, uh, programs where they, they made a corner office and put a couple people in and tried to sell some license plates to, to support um, management for the other 99% of the wildlife in the state. Um, that, that hasn't, we'll, we'll talk more about funding possibilities in a bit, but that didn't take, didn't take off. And so, um, although... Agent, most agencies will give lip service to these non-game species. Uh, they're, they're not being paid to do it. Um, and the, their, their biggest lip service to it is, say, well, when we manage these game species, these other species benefit, which, of course, falls short when it comes to the predators. The predators are managed specifically, specifically to put more game in the bag, which means kill them. Because the simple equation that most game agencies use is, one less predator, more deer, more elk, uh, which obviously scientifically is, has been proven wrong over and over again. But that's, that's the other issue of science. Well, let's talk about that a little bit because the science, I mean, everybody today in terms of everything we know 
in terms of ecological studies, the data, and ecosystems, going back to Robert Beshta and William Ripple and their studies of five national parks and Yellowstone, which ends up being the poster child for the reintroduction of wolves and what it did. It's Why are we not getting the science in these agencies? What What's the barrier? The barrier is that the science doesn't doesn't agree with what with their primary primary objective, and that is more game in the bag. I've just read through. I was responding to a letter to the editor on Cougar management in Oregon, and so I, I just read through again the uh, the Cougar management plan, which is abysmal. Um, but what it goes through is they go through and they list all the different articles, one after another, the, the reviews of articles showing that uh, the cougars don't have an effect on deer populations. The conclusion they draw is that there's some indication that cougars do have an, in, a, an impact on deer populations, so we have to kill them. That's what's going on in Colorado as of a couple of years ago. Our, our, our Division of Wildlife merged with parks, so now it's called Colorado Parks and Wildlife, so parks right. come first. And um, just last week, there were four cougars, a mom and three cubs, roaming around West Glenwood, which is like 45 miles from me, and the whole state U.S. Fish and Wildlife Agency is has killed them, just out of hand, saying mm-hmm. they pose a threat to human health and safety, and I do understand it's very difficult to reintroduce lions elsewhere. Same thing with African lions. They're territorial. But why is the response, as soon as they come into our area, to kill them? Uh, the response, I think, is to, is to maintain the what I call the myth of the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse for wildlife. And that is... Um, predators are, are considered to, uh, well, first of all, if uncontrolled, will reach uh, superabundant numbers and basically overrun the landscape. The second horseman of the apocalypse is that um, predators, especially uh, cougars and wolves, are dangerous to us. The third one is that they're dangerous to our, our livestock, and the fourth one is that they're dangerous to our, um, our, our deer, our game species. That's the again. That is the the um, management mantra of all the game agencies, and for them to um, deviate from that, even though the science doesn't support that whatsoever, to deviate from that would then indicate that indeed uh, we should be managing these the predators differently than what we do now. So, um, wow, I'm just boggled at 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 this because we know so much more and in Africa the parallel is we're implementing it and we're understanding that these carnivores and iconic species not just because we love them but because they have an important ecological role to play so let's get into that a little bit Um, the role that cougars and wolves and our carnivores play in our United States ecosystems, mostly in the West, where it seems to be they are more of a problem. And then we have our very own USDA uh, wildlife services that, you know, the shoot, shovel, and shut up model. And um, so 
let, let's talk about this a bit more. Why these animals, the carnivores, are so critical in our landscapes so that we can understand, do we need to fear them? Are they going to attack us? And is that a, a, a responsible uh, view when we understand how important they are in managing our ecosystems? The, the, the carnivores. Yeah, first of all, in terms of their, their value to the ecosystem, um, it's been long suspected that that they play a role, a primary a role, a lethal role. That is, they do kill kill um, uh, their prey. And there's been you know past scientific articles that um, basically asked the question whether or not predators were able to maintain the the ecological balance uh, simply by killing their prey, and um, and basically, it's it, this is an arg- argument that continues. It's uh, commonly referred to as either the bottom-up or the, or the top-down theory of how ecosystems work. Top-down means that the predators control systems. Bottom-up means that resources control a prey species. Um, it turns out that primarily that, um, they both do, obviously. But um, the I think what's important is not so much that they that predators kill their prey. But our work uh, discovered in uh, in Yellowstone when we looked at the, the reaction of the wolves to or the, the elk and to the reintroduction of the wolves was that I think that the greatest role that predators play is that they instill fear into their prey. And you were you were the person that coined that phrase ecology of fear. That in the landscape of fear, yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. let's let's talk about that a little bit because both William Ripple and Robert Beshta used that phrase in their studies, and part of the reason why we had the wolf reintroduction. Let's let's explain how that ecology of fear works. Okay, basically, um, it makes sense that if um, someone's going to, something's going to try to kill you, you should be afraid of it. Uh, Regardless of what species you are, we tend to think fear is a is a more human trait, but it's it runs all the way through all of the whole animal kingdom. It's why the uh, cockroaches scurry when the light turns on. It's, um, it's fear, and so if we we accept that um, you should be afraid of something that's going to kill you. You then um, adjust to that fear. We we commonly refer to it as predation risk, um, but that's just the risk at that. Uh, that the, that the predator will catch you. It's what drives the whole system is that emotional fear that they will catch you. That's then honed down to a level where you know better um, how uh, fearful you should be in different parts of your of your landscape. Uh, predators are not universally efficient across the board. For example, wolves are better, more efficient in the open. Um, cougars are more efficient along the the uh, more brushy areas. And so what the prey learn is that, indeed, there are places where they're more likely to get killed uh, than other places. They make their adjustments, and they then use the landscape based upon the levels of fear that they, they have of going into those different things. I mean, we do the same thing. There are certain parts of town which we don't go into unless we have to. Uh, it's, you know, fear has, has driven our social and evolutionary history just as much as anyone else. And so based upon that, what we find is that um, when you re- remove a predator, you remove that fear, and the animals can go anywhere. And we get, it, we get the situation that we had in Yellowstone before the wolves came back. That is, 
a high number of, you know, large populations of these individuals moving around like cows in the landscape and basically causing a lot of ecological havoc. Once those predators come back, they reestablish this landscape of fear, and the, the whole system adjusts. One of the first things is that there are now uh, less resources available um, to feed these animals. And so automatically, the, what we usually call the carrying capacity of the area is reduced. And so this is where um, the impact of the um, predator will have on reducing these, these uh, prey populations. They'll reduce them. Sure, they'll they eat some, but uh, those can be replaced. But to reduce them simply because now the, the there are fewer resources available to these prey, and that's they uh, they use the landscape differently, and that's what we've seen in Yellowstone. Uh, we now and, have. And then there's also the impact of us going everywhere. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And in fact, in, in Yellowstone, the safe place is now for the for the elk or where the people are. Uh, and so, and they, and they all know that they they move into those areas. So this is where the hunter argument comes into play. Um, it's not just that cougars and wolves are eating um, wildlife, but that overall the carrying capacity when we reintroduce carnivores shifts the mentality of the prey base to a logical and sustainable carrying capacity that the land can sustain. Uh-huh. So the hunters are saying, we don't want that. That's a good thing. I don't know why they don't want a good thing, especially when they say they, they understand how nature works. They don't. Um, there are too many deer on the landscape. Look at the east. The east is overrun with deer simply because it doesn't have its, the main predators there. People are dying on the highways because there's too many deer. But that, that seems to be okay. And then and now, we've got in, I think, Montana and Wyoming, um, chronic wasting disease. That's another, you know, any other species other than these game species, if, if a, a um, person looked at, that, at what's going on, they would say, well, that's because there's too many animals. You have an epidemic of a, you know, a disease has moved through a population, an epidemic of it because there's too many of them. But they don't say that with the deer. They say, oh, dear, oh, dear, what do we do with these? They have chronic wasting disease. That's because there's too many deer on the landscape. And then the deer, of course, come into our habitats and we feed them because we create such wonderful spaces for them where they're secure. They have everything they need, food, water, shelter, and safety. So Mm -hmm. then we wonder why the mountain lions follow them in to our areas. Mm Mm-hmm. But we shouldn't worry about it. I mean, <laughs> they've been doing that in California for over 40 years, and there's right. kind of problems. Right. Well, this is a good place to take a break because we still have quite a bit of territory to cover, so to speak. So mm-hmm. stick with us, and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. 
Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. And welcome back. You're listening to Our Wild World with my guest, John Landre, cougar biologist and 30 years of experience studying carnivores and, and ungulate populations because that's part of the picture uh, throughout uh, the United States and Mexico. So uh, if you're just tuning in, we've been talking about uh Wildlife management systems in the U.S., all the characters at play, the agencies, the biologists, the nonprofits, and the funding. So uh, we ended up in the last section talking about impacts of carnivores on the ungulate populations and <laughs> thus why the hunters feel carnivores should be removed from the landscape, that there is less for them to take. So let's get into the reality of what the carnivores impact is on livestock. Okay. Um, one of the other like I mentioned, this is the other horseman of the apocalypse concerning predators, and that is that somehow they are affecting um, our domestic livestock. And they, you know, obviously they do. Well, you get sensationalized reports of, um, of um, say, a mountain lion killing several sheep or taking a cow or a, a wolves eat, um, attacking cows once in a while. And so we have to look at it and, and address as to whether or not this is, should be of a concern. Um, here we actually do have quite a bit of a, a good data set on just how, what impact predators in general have on livestock, and uh, specifically, uh, in this case, cougars. And what we find is that uh, when we look at the amount of uh, animals that are out on the range, that is, sheep and cattle out on the range where they're exposed to predators, this is excluding 
um, and dairy animals that are kept in barns or livestock um, in uh, feedlots. When we look at the total number of these animals that are kept in the range where these predators occur, uh, we find that, again, the, the percentage of animals that are taken by these predators is very small. Uh, for, for cattle, it's less than a 1% uh, of the, um, the livestock that, that's out there. And uh, for sheep, it's, it's a similar low percentages. And so what we find is that there, um, the number of animals that are being killed uh, by uh, these predators is really in, in, insignificant relative to, to all of the live, that livestock that's out there. And it becomes even less significant when we consider that uh, for cattle at least, um, livestock uh, cattle owners are, are losing uh, two or three times more of the, uh, their livestock to non-predator causes than to predator causes. And these all range from uh, poor husbandry to accidents and falling off of cliffs, um, simply because they're just turned loose on the range without much any management at all. And so what we find is that, um, again, just as with the other uh, supposed problems with, with predators, that this is really isn't a problem at all. Uh, a lot of it can be uh, rectified. Uh, we know that uh, you can effectively reduce even further the, the small impact that these predators have by a variety of different um, management techniques, from guard dogs to um, defenses to all kinds of things. And, and an, another point to just reiterate here is when we're talking about the range uh, and cattle and sheep, that range is often our public lands. That once again goes back to where we started, we're paying for in our taxes. Yes, it is, it is public land uh, across the West, and it's public land that's being rented very cheaply to the ranchers. Yeah, I think uh-huh. I just read the the new lease for 2019. The rate is $1.41 per animal unit. Uh-huh. And that's ridiculous. Uh, the, one of the biggest subsidized welfare, if you want to call it, systems we have in this country are the ranchers using public land. Yeah. Uh, it's simply because they are they're basically given free reign in terms of how to use this land. And then they complain when, when the uh, wildlife on this land competes or, or preys upon these cattle. Uh, in my mind, you graze on public land at your own risk. And the other and, point is this 99, 98% of wildlife watchers um, who on average, I think you had said, spend 77 days out in nature intensely observing wildlife, whether it's a tourist in the park or a biologist doing field work, gathering data. Um, this is the place that has been set aside in the United States for wildlife. And wildlife means all animals, not just the prey species, as we discussed. And when we think as in terms of the general public loving the idea of wolves out there and mountain lions and bears, they're competing with this vested interest system, as you've um, explained to us, managed for particular game species and livestock. Yes, and that's, that's, uh, that again is the crux of the problem with, with management of wildlife 
in this country. So how do we how do we change that? How do we change it? We change the system. Um, unfortunately, because the salaries of the fish and game agencies are paid by the hunters, until we change it, until the operating budgets of the uh, these agencies reflect the uh, the population, uh, we won't get we won't see a change uh, because um, what we we uh, even though the the uh, wildlife watching segment of the population p- pays a major bill relative to um, keeping the wildlife out there, the paying the people who actually go out into the field is still covered by the hunters. Uh, we have to change that in a variety of different ways. Um, unfortunately, and I guess it really wouldn't be that much anyway, but unfortunately, the uh, the sporting industry defeated a, an attempt to have an excise tax similar to what's being charged on, um, on uh, hunting supplies uh, that would have added um, money to these agencies to, to um, devote to wildlife. I remember that coming up on one of our ballots a few years ago, should there be an excise tax on outdoor sporting goods? Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think a lot of people understood what that meant. You know, I think a lot of people might have just thought, oh, I'm going to be taxed more when I get this, so no. So what we need to understand, possibly you can help us here, is we should vote for that. And we should... Um, Act, be ad, activists and advocates to get the real costs of saving and protecting our wildlands and our carnivores uh, to be paid for by the majority of the people that are paying for it already and want to see it. So how, how would you suggest we go about advocating and act and being activists for that? Well, uh, there's two things. One, I think the exercise tax on sporting goods it's a good idea, but I don't think it's something that we could rely on. Uh, just as the game, you know, the state agencies look at getting the the excise tax money from the firearms as a as a plus, but it's still not that large of a percentage of their operating budget. And so, I don't think we need to put all of our, our eggs in that one basket. We for sure do not want to put all of our eggs into the oil basket. Uh, the there's been a gold ribbon panel that has suggested that the way out of this is to take is to divert some of the the uh, taxes paid by the oil industry on fracking to um, and divert that to the wildlife agencies. Wow, that, is that the would biggest, be a biggest mistake in the world. That would be a huge mess because then the oil company would feel that they have to have a say on how wildlife is managed. The solution, the solution to all this is basically convince the the, the public that we need to reinvest, and, and the um, politicians, that we need to reinvest in wildlife. That is, if we look at the numbers that we, we mentioned before, uh, wildlife is one of the best investments that can be made. I think one I've seen a figure for every dollar spent, you get $9 back. Um, and so if we look at that and say, well, we need to basically reinvest in this system that's generating so much of, the, of our our tax base uh, simply by by dedicating some of the general fund toward that um, that particular uh, process that is the wildlife management um, this isn't cost this isn't being raising new taxes or anything like that this is just saying that uh, just like the lottery because it generates funds 
we should be reinvesting some of those funds we get from the um, from wildlife back into wildlife. Missouri is doing it. I think a couple other states are doing it with their sales tax. That's what they're doing. They're reinvesting a portion of the taxes they're getting to the system that's generating those taxes. That's just pure good business sense. And then this this sort of brings us back to the North American model of wildlife conservation, the NAM, mm-hmm. and the seven principles that um, you've written about and how it's interpreted. And one of them, which we talked about, wildlife is held in the public trust. The other, there's com- there's commerce on dead wildlife, which mm-hmm. is the hunting. And then this number three, democratic rule of law. That hunting and fishing laws are not created through an open public process where everyone has an opportunity to participate. Now, there's a spot that people need to know. Listeners, tune into this because this is where we, um, this this 98% of us who love to watch wildlife or understand its critical role in our ecosystems where we're facing a world that's collapsing, this is where we can get our representatives involved, yeah? Yes, I think I, I think we need to have some grassroots um, support um, and petitions to the, to the state legislators that indeed we, uh, we need. We need to reinvest some of the tax revenue that comes from, and a small percentage. I, mean, just, I think we, we estimated, um, for example, um, if you took a quarter off, off of a dollar and reinvested, no, maybe it's even less than that, a quarter off of a hundred dollars and, re- and reinvested it, that is for every hundred dollars of, sa- of sales tax that this estate got, you took a quarter. That would bring in millions. Uh, or reinvest millions of dollars into a system that would then generate even more millions of dollars. And who would be managing that that fund? Well, the, the management of it would be the you know the the, the accountants for the state, you know the tax that tax commissions, all the the people who decide where the money actually goes. So we would uh, need once, a, we'd need a little work in recodifying. No, not necessarily. You just all you have to do is is that is that um, for the legislature to designate uh, a, for example, like in Missouri, a, a certain percent. And if you have a sales tax, a certain percent of the sales tax that then goes to a special fund that then goes to to the um, uh, agency game agencies for wildlife, all wildlife, um, and then. Uh, 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 what international resources do we have? At our fingertips. I mean, you you mentioned, you know, wildlife migrates; it moves across borders. How mm-hmm. can we bring that into play with our, our our sister neighbors? Well, our sister neighbors, both Mexico and, and Canada, have have their own agencies, have and their own pro- problems, their own limit, limitations. Um, and basically, I think, um, in terms of uh, the the wildlife that do migrate across the uh, the borders, um, maybe we should be <laughs> should be not not them helping us, but us helping them. A uh, certain percent of the a certain amount of money should go to Mexico to to maintain the, the wintering areas for for monarch butterflies. They they shouldn't have to to carry the whole burden for those for those areas uh, simply because they do they are a resource that cuts all across all three countries. And, and then we do have two apps uh, in the United States that 
um, work for us in this. There's the Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1918, mm-hmm. and there is the Wilderness Act. Mm-hmm. How do we how do we bring those in as well? Well, those uh, I'm not as familiar with. I mean, the, the Migratory Bird Act is primarily for for birds that were hunted, um, and that covers duck stamps, geese stamps, these types of things. Um, and I don't know how inclusive it is for non-game migratory species. Uh, and it's like with, likewise with the Wilderness Act, I am not sure if there are provisions in there uh, to allow for um, the uh, conservation of these species that do move across our borders. But yeah, that's that's a whole other, I think, but right now I think the biggest concern is to just get us to better manage wildlife on the state level because the states are, are the ones that have control all the wildlife, and unfortunately, right now, it's with that control, the hunters have the major say in how those wildlife are managed. And then I, I neglected to say we do have two other very um, prominent acts the Endangered Species Act and the Environmental um, Protection Act. So, folks, we do have um, systems in place in this country uh, that we need to make better use of through our representatives, and that requires activism and advocacy. We, we have opportunities to turn more funding toward the percentage of population, which is larger than the hunting population, to uh, providing protection and funding to wildlife, the non-game species. So, John, we have a, a couple of minutes left here, and um, we're going to have another conversation coming up uh, right after this one, uh, folks, uh, about the cougar aspects, cougars, wolves, and our carnivores specifically. But, John, um, for today, how would what would be what you want our, our international audience to take away from today's conversation? From the <clears throat> the whole audience. Yeah, uh, I think that the takeaway in this here is that wildlife in this in this in this country are being mismanaged because they're being they're being managed by the, the philosophy of the more game in the bag. Uh, this has this hurts non-game species because they're ignored. This hurts predatory species because they're they're um, considered to be um, counter to this uh, this this philosophy. We need to change that. My vision for the game or for the wildlife agencies, true wildlife agencies in the state, is that the game people have the corner office, and the non the, the non game people have the rest of the office of the building. I like because, that idea because they do represent the other ninety nine percent of the wildlife that are out there, and that predators are not managed relative to their their supposed impact on game populations, but they're managed for their ecological value. Should be managed for their importance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's my vision. Well, you know, I'd like to talk about that some more, um, and we're going to, but today we're out of time. So once again, John, thank you so much. This was great information, and thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. for. And uh-huh. folks, um, when you step outside, take a look at your wild world and think about all the wildlife that's out there and how we, uh, the public, can do better by it. So thank you very much. See you next week. Thank you again for joining us this week. 
Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now.